Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. This is our 36th show, marking the end of our third year. We will be coming out with a summary of the year in the near future. Today, we are fortunate to have the major national thought leaders in value-based care on the show. Dr. Joshua Lau is the Associate Chair for Health Systems in the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington, and he's also their Medical Director of Payment Strategy. I've had the privilege of working, Josh, for the last year on PTAC, the Health and Human Services Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee. How's that for a mouthful? It's a government committee focused on developing solutions for value-based care. Josh is one of the brightest minds on this committee. I am always impressed with his knowledge of the science behind constructing value-based care payment models. I'm sure you will equally be impressed as well. Josh is a general internist who spends most of his time working to create better health systems, and in particular, systems for financing and delivering health care. He works towards this goal in several ways, including participating in his local system leadership, scholarship, evaluation, and service on state and national advisory groups like the PTAC. I'm going to try to get as much out of him today as I can. Welcome to the show, Josh. Larry, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, and we're excited to have you. Josh, I usually start the show by allowing my guests to tell the listeners a little bit about themselves. Looking at your accomplishments, you put a capital O in the word overachiever. I'd love to have you tell the listeners what drives you or what drove you to pursue the career that you've pursued. Well, it's a great question. And I think often it's a truism, but things that become truisms are first true before that happens. Um, <laughs> I really think I have tried to really stay close to things that fit a couple of bills. The first is that it really has to be a place of passion. It has to spark energy in me. You know, there are many important things that I think the world needs, but I think my best efforts and ultimately my best results are close to those things that I'm really passionate about inherently. So that's been one kind of it has to fit that bill. The second has to be purpose, which is that it has to make the world a better place. That's my own view. And the third, it has to be in the priority set. You know, I think a lot of us probably could spend our time doing a number of very important, interesting things, right? That the world needs. But if you were to prioritize those, what would that that be? And so, trying to really thread that needle, things that really meet the kind of passion, the purpose, and the priority, has really been um, something that I've tried to stay close to, and and just follow that that along and. Um, I think in many ways, where I am here today is a product of that. Well, you know what? Again, you, you added science to your answer there. That's fantastic. You spent a lot of time with that. Why did you choose to be a specialist in value-based care? Of all the things you could have done as a general internist, why did you choose this? General internal medicine provides a number of very interesting perspectives and important ones. And one is that telescoping between the patient in front of you and then to, to telescope out and to really think about all the things that affect his, her, their care. My personal view is I couldn't have been a very engaged general internist without doing that telescoping. But when you come across that, you realize that there are bigger forces at play. Um, and this is something that I think many of us that work in our professional societies, our local systems, um, in national, regional groups know, which is that you do the best for the patients in front of you. But then what about those bigger systemic issues that you really want to address? And so that uh, was really impressed upon me as I went through. The fundamental thing was I really looked at our system as a, as a system based on inputs. 
um, what is the intensity and the time and things that go into delivering healthcare. And I don't mean to say that's not important, but I really aspire to contribute to a system that really looks at outputs. You know, so what's the health output that we're getting for the unit input that we're putting in? And so I think value-based payment and care as a relatively recent movement in the grand scheme of things, I think provided one way of doing that. You know, maybe it'll be called something else, Larry, you know, mm-hmm. in 10, 20 years. If I'm fortunate enough to have my shoulder at the wheel working on this stuff, that's what I'll be working on. You know, a- any kind of construct that says, how do we generate the output we want for people and communities? even if imperfect, is a worthwhile thing to me. Just to elaborate and answer a little bit and pin you down a little bit, most of us as physicians focus on quality. Mm -hmm. In my training, in the course of my career, everybody focused on how do you provide quality. You you went to value, which (laughs) which brought the the cost factor into that as well. So you you added, you you gave yourself a higher goal to achieve. Uh, Can you Share with us why you beyond quality and value. Well, let me say, I have a lot of respect for the quality movement. And in fact, I cut my teeth on many quality-based initiatives and groups um, earlier in my career. I, I think for me personally, it just felt I had to mind the numerator and the denominator. So I created a, a task of minding the quotient, right? Basically, I created a denominator. I'm sure most clinicians can, I think of at least a few stories like this, where if you just focus on quality with no mind to the cost, Right. Uh, to your group or to the patient or to society at large, you're missing something, right? And you can see the untoward effects of cost blindness, so to speak, right? If you're not thinking about cost. And so there was something very important to me about simultaneously considering the two. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that it factors into my decision-making as a clinician all the time and in the same way in every instance. Recognizing those two come together in the world, I think is very important. When I first began, there was this holy grail of sorts and value, which is that you wanted to find the things that would improve quality and reduce costs. Of course, if you can do those two things, that's great. But that's probably a small slice of the world that we live in. And once you take through all the excess, once you cut through all the, uh, so to speak, fat, you start hitting muscle and bone. You start hitting things where to get better quality, you need to pay more for it. And I think this concept of value also applies there. This is really not about cost cutting. This is about for the dollars that we put into a system, what is the health output we get? And that may in some ways uh, require more dollars, but if we get disproportionate quality and outcome gains out of that, that to me is value. So I, I hope that's not lost in the conversation around value. Well, that's an excellent answer. You, 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 you really did great with that. So you're a system person and you practice in a health system. And even in your, in your LinkedIn site, you talk about building better systems. When I read that statement, I thought, what do you mean by better? And why did you focus on health system? Well, better is uh, in many ways, I think in the eye of the beholder, but I'll just speak for myself and say, I think better for me is very concrete in certain ways. It's better outcomes at the individual and population level. I also consider better a more equitable system. And what I mean by that is I think there um, over time is what I've observed and experienced myself is that I think there's a lot of well-intentioned effort to say, how do we get the biggest bang for our buck? How do we get the largest increase in quality, the best improvements in outcomes, the greatest reductions in cost, inefficiency? Who can argue those things? But I think the reality and the data bear out that if you just focus on the magnitude to get a big effect, um, often what happens is you create very uneven or an unequitable effects that the improvements come disproportionately through benefit to certain groups and not to other groups. 
I would hope through my work and other people's work that we are collectively widening the aperture, so to speak, and thinking about better as both better in an absolute overall magnitude sense, but also more equitable. You approach this from a system point of view, from a health system. You know, uh, independent providers, they exist outside of the outside of the health system. They have to interact with it. But tell us why you focused on this from a from a health system point of view. Yeah, at the risk of getting into the semantics of it, you know, I think I view systems in a much broader way. You know, there are system entities that didn't exist 20 or 30 years ago. There are probably going to be some that don't exist today, Larry, that show up in 20 or 30 years. Mm. In the broadest sense, you can think of systems as any organizing set of things that produce health, but you can also think about it in a very specific way of, you know, a clinically integrated network or integrated delivery system. And I'm much more interested in the former than I am in the latter. I do think though, when it comes to things like managing populations and pursuing quality and cost efficiency when appropriate, when buttressing value and trying to really take away inequity, I think in all of these things, it's very hard to do that if you don't have a way to roll up from an individual patient to a population, when you can't bring clinicians and organizations together. By one way or another, I feel like there needs to be scale. Uh, otherwise, this thing doesn't go. How we get there, and whether it's a, you know, a federation of independent practices or kind of practice agreements or acquisitions, there are pros and cons to all of that. But um, I think that's why, fundamentally. All right. Makes sense. So you spent a lot of time working on how payment strategies can be used to improve outcomes of care. Expand on this for the listeners. How do you approach designing payment strategies to improve outcomes? Sure. At the most fundamental level, I think if you don't project an explicit intention into policy design and practice implementation, you end up having one anyway. When models, for example, payment models say we want to reduce costs, there's an implicit assumption that reducing costs is appropriate and achievable. And so I think it's really important for us to begin by just surfacing all of those assumptions and really examining them to see which ones make sense, which ones we aspire to, which ones we might want to set aside, and which ones maybe sound good, but then once you implement it, you can see these, quote, unintended effects. Which is all to say, I think intention precedes implementation, and you see that as much in payment policy as anywhere else. And so I think, as Ian, as potentially cheesy as it sounds, I think beginning by setting an explicit intention about designing the models you want is incredibly important. While that might sound conceptual, there are very concrete ramifications of this. And what I mean by that is if you and I were to try to put your, your listeners to sleep by going through all the mechanics of all the different parts of payment policy and payment design, I think what we would find that little survey of payment model components is there are ways in which to, to change design in an intentional way behind that intention to the kinds of outcomes that you want. I'm happy to give you examples later on, but, but I do think that the design is critical. I think actually the biggest danger is to assume that the design is only marginally important. It's all in the doing, it's all in the implementation, because really once you line up the rules up front, it constrains or it frees right clinicians and organizations up to do things or not to do things. And so really um, designing with intention, I think is critical. Designing with intention. That's what I'm going to use. I'm going to steal that from you. Take it freely. Okay. So you're we're in a system, we have all of these components of care, they all have to be paid, mm-hmm. and they ha- all have to be ba- paid based upon your model and, and your strategy. How do you approach balancing the interests, the interests of the hospitals, the PCPs, the SCPs? How do you begin to approach that uh, in a scientific manner? 
maybe the first thing I'll say is I don't think any of us, any of us in the broader healthcare community or the groups that you just described, I don't think any of us are best served by unclear definitions, by things that um, are murky, by unexamined concepts. So I think that's very important. Um, and why do I say that? Because often when people ask me about payment model design, they say, well, don't you worry about the effects of your design? And I tell them, you know, in the absence of doing that, the alternative is not a vacuum. The alternative is the system we have today. Mm-hmm. And in the system today, we have winners and losers. I personally happen to believe it's often incredibly inequitable and inefficient, but we have a system in the absence of a new design. And so I think recognizing that is part of the impetus to change. It's not just what is the positives where we want to go. It's that there are a lot of things I don't think that we are proud of, can be proud of in in the US healthcare system. I think there are definitely bright spots. I think there are things we do well, but um, I think overall, uh, we don't get the output and health that we want for dollars invested and effort put in through our workforce and others. If we kind of create that right comparison, that there are winners and losers, and this is not a system perhaps that we aspire to, how do we balance the, the interests of others? I think we have to be very candid about the fact that in the new system, there are potentially also winners and losers. There are potentially shifts in where patients go and revenue and how things get paid. I don't think there's an easy way around that. And it doesn't help serve us to kind of duck that point. But I do feel that if we allow those forces to occur in a system that's better designed to get, again, the health outputs that we want, I think we're in a better place uh, than that. And so, you know, healthcare is also incredibly local. So there's no prescription here. You know, there's no policy or practice prescription for what every community should do. But I think acknowledging the trade offs that we already make and thinking about a different set of trade offs. That's what I would hope most people would think about when you think about how to balance you know, all the interests and the concerns of different stakeholder groups. Okay. So in an effort to have more winners than we have today and fewer losers and to integrate everybody so that they're focused on outcomes, a joint outcome, system outcome, mm-hmm. um, that's good for a population of patients, mm-hmm. we have to move away from carving components out of programs and figuring out ways to nest them in. And I know you and I have discussed this at times in the past at PTAC. Share with us what ideas you might have about how to nest those specialists into total, total cost of care models so that they're part of the team rather than a carve out. Yeah. Well, what a tiny, easy question, Larry, for you to ask me. We just, let's just fix it in the next 10 minutes, okay? Yeah, we're I mean, spending we a year on. on this at, at PT. <laughs> All right. Let's just take 10 minutes and we can move on to the next thing. No, I mean, jokes aside, that's obviously, it's a, a complex issue. Before I answer that, let me just say, uh, and again, in the spirit of really clear, incisive thinking on this collectively, you know, often when we say a joint, we're really talking about accountability, but often this very quickly slips into coordination or communication. This is not a, a point about semantics, but I do think there's something different about clinicians or organizations talking, data flowing freely. I mean, those are foundational things we need, but that doesn't take you to accountability and joint work towards an end for a patient or a community, right? In my view. And so I think we want to be very careful. Well, let's just let the EHRs, the electronic health records talk to each other. That's part, but that's not sufficient in my mind. Uh, let's make sure that referrals, the loot's close. Yes, Absolutely. But, but not sufficient unto itself. Uh, well, let's have coordination. So really many times when we're in these conversations in PTAC and others, right? what we're talking about is, is management. The question is, how is management a different concept 
than coordination or communication. And I would propose that it is very different. There's something active, there's something proactive about it. And there's a sense of accountabilities, right? These are the things that I'm accountable to in someone's care. And so whatever solution we and others devise, I would like to see it really focused on accountability and management that emanates from that. And so I think when you think about then nesting in and carving out, carving out is fundamentally, it moves away from that idea of accountability and, uh, and, and management together. So I think the idea of pursuing nesting is good. I also think here that perfect can't be the enemy of good uh, as well, because if you try to nest in, there are always going to be those small abrasion points when you're, when you're putting those models together. And if you use each of those as a reason, you could justify never doing any nesting. Uh, but I do feel that the nesting has to have some clear, explicit ide- idea that primary care, subspecialty, surgical, medical, traditional health organizations, non-traditional health organizations, there has to be some coming together. Call it a compact, call it a care plan, put some dollars at stake, create some joint quality metrics, create incentives at the individual, but also collective level. So group performance, as well as individual performance. There are specific ways I think to do it, but those to me substantiate accountability in a way that I think some other very nice solutions really are talking more about communication and coordination. And I I don't think that passes muster here. The term cascading accountability, you know, cascading levels of accountability in a large organization, that's that's something that we really need to promote more of. We we can't just be looking out for what's best for each of us. We have to we have to have a focus on what's best for the entity. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take a quick little break here. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. Joshua Lau, Associate Chair for Health Systems in the Department of Medicine at the University of Washington. Okay, Josh, you and I sit on PTAC, where we can hopefully move the glacier and help shape the path of healthcare on a national basis. Where do you see value-based care going nationally? Where do you think the trend is moving? Well, let me just say um, that obviously these are my views and my views alone. They don't speak for PTAC. I don't speak for you know groups Correct. or my employers, but um, I think that the chassis of what we call value-based care and payment will continue forward. Do I think we'll always call it this? Not sure. I think that probably will evolve. I think for those of us who are in the field, I think we're seeing more and more people come up against some negatives of the field, uh, both in the perception of it, you know, so the moniker of value I think, as well as the design of historical programs. I think some of those points are well taken. But again, that's where I think that the alternative is not some perfect system. If we just stop with the value, we'll have what we want. No, right? The the reason value-based movement has emerged, I believe, is that there are some issues that need to be addressed in the US healthcare system. So I don't see those going away. They may be renamed. I would like to think through intentional design and implementation that they get better but I have a hard time seeing the kind of substance of what the movement at its best represents going away in the next 10 years. Okay. So it's, it's going to continue, but it's going to change shape, change focus over time. Currently, we're seeing risk being pushed down from large entities like CMS or like health plans onto ACOs and other population-based total cost of care models. And Currently, these entities still, going back to your, your science behind payment methodologies, 
these entities still pay providers on a fee-for-service basis. Where's the transition going to occur? How, how do we promote the shift? How do we, how do we move away from fee-for-service to more value-based payments? Uh, it's such an important question, Larry, and I think there's so many ways to answer it. I'll pick a few, but this is certainly not exhaustive. I think it's important to recognize a few things. Number one, the problems we have for fee-for-service is in part the way the system is designed, but it's in part things like pricing. And there are other countries that use fee-for-service to effect. In fact, some might say they're exemplars, but they use fee-for-service under a different pricing mechanism, or they use it alongside other measures like global budgets. And I think we have heard probably in our community, different people say, hey, you know, fee-for-service is not through and through negative. I also think that there is no payment mechanism that is completely without unintended or dangerous negative effects. Right. So we have to ask ourselves, what would the pluses and minuses of the other systems be? So I think that's an important level set. Um, I think when it comes to, though, uh, this idea of shifting from fee for service to more value based payments, I do think it goes back to what we talked about before. Um, You asked me, where do I think the movement is going? I think fee for service as we know it has shifted under our feet as well. Uh, What we call fee for service 30 years ago is not what we call it today whether through DRGs and APCs and globals and this and that, it's not what it was before. And I can't personally see a view of a future where it goes back to that. So I think that's number one. Number two, I, I think we're seeing payers make it less and less comfortable to be in quote pure fee for service. I think that's part of the shift. Third, I think there is a recognition that we need to fund healthcare, but also non-healthcare initiatives to really drive health. I think that's another shift. I think all of these things create hooks that will keep us moving in the direction of value. I think the things we'll have to grapple with is that when do we flip over those traditional systems of revenue and operations and care delivery? At what point do some of those become obsolete? At which point do those need to be reimagined? Uh, And I'll tell you just anecdotally, my sense is among the healthcare community, there's both excitement and also nervousness about that. Uh, But I do think it will come personally in the coming years. You and I have sat at meetings at PTEC, and uh, we've seen around the country, in addition to this pu- pushing down from above onto large entities like ACOs, we've seen a, a groundswell, a bottom-up strategy coming from large primary national primary care groups. It's almost like there's two forces trying to manage this market better from the top-down and a bottom-up strategy. I've been impressed with what the primary care entities have been accomplished. Do you see one of these two, either the top down or the bottom up, succeeding more than the other going forward? This is going to sound like I'm trying to sidestep it, and I'm certainly not, but I think both are needed. And it really gets back down to just being very clear-eyed about what we need for progress. I think as the pendulum, so to speak, swings back and forth, we often become enamored with a certain model like this is going to scale up. And you know, Larry, you and I have probably thought or experienced or been in conversations where we've talked about exemplar organizations. And if, if the world could just be like them, then the world doesn't become like them or others try and it doesn't work. And so I don't mean to be a downer in that, but I mean to say we actually need to pull a bunch of different levers, I believe, some top down, so to speak, some bottom up, some from the side to torture the analogy. I think we need to try many different things. And that's not a, a bug in the system. That's not a defect, I think. That is um, a feature, actually, of, of what we can try uh, to be pragmatic. As you said earlier, terms are going to change, models are going to change, 
There will be a hybrid somewhere along the line. These two forces may combine to produce an entity that takes the best of both uh, approaches. It'll be interesting to see where this goes. I would be remiss if I didn't close this discussion today with a question about the patient perspective. We get very sophisticated in our models, modeling and our strategies uh, from a provider, from a payer's point of view, but we can't forget that patient's point of view. How do you think we best engage the patients into wanting value-based care strategy? A critical question. I'm glad we're going to end on this. First, let me just acknowledge that I think we haven't done a great job of engaging uh, patients in value-based payments historically. You know, The quip often heard is patients may or may not even know that they're in these models. Again, I would submit this is not to give us a pass on that. It's just simply to say two things. One is that under the prevalent fee-for-service or volume-based methods, it's not as if we were exemplars of patient engagement either. And then second is that I do think there has been a kind of a, a trend over time in people understanding their healthcare, engaging in healthcare, whether you want to call it a consumer approach or a patient-centered um, approach. I do think we have progressed in that way over time, and I'm glad to see it. So with all that said, I think um, we're beginning to make certain steps, for instance, requiring that patients serve on certain guiding boards of value-based models, I think providing certain patient materials. I think education is one thing, but Larry, if education could fix the ills of the world, we would have fixed it by now. And um, and I think beyond that, you know, there are things we're beginning to see with beneficiary enhancements, you know, things that might create incentives for individuals to engage in certain models. And I think all of those are very important. I think the other thing is when you ask me about systems, when you have multiple systems, if you have one system covering a large area or set of people versus five smaller ones, it just creates surface area for needing to manage more interests and more dynamics and more, more connection points for communication or lack thereof. So I, I do think that some level of scale is very important for patients as well to know that, okay, my care for my primary care or my subspecialty care or this or that care, there will be some kind of unified focus around that. And so I can engage in that in a whole person way. I think the more fragmented our system is, the more challenging that becomes. And it's often not what you think about when you think of value-based payment models, but I'd like to think it would be going forward. Josh, you really have mastered the science of this. Now I have to bring in surface area and contact points. And that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed having you on today. I look forward to continuing to work with you at PTEC. And um, I'm just going to listen a lot to what you say because I learn from you every time. Thank you so much for being on the show today. No, thanks for having me, Larry. Uh, I likewise learned from you and many others in the community. And I hope that, you know, I offered the two cents to the bigger, the bigger work of getting this healthcare system to a better place and towards value or whatever we want to call it, but things that are better for patients and communities. So thanks a lot. Well said. Thank you, Josh. Thanks to the audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on our programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. <laughs>